watchers in the fourth dimension. There's a brain with a purpose behind it all. Death, you see, has its own particular posture and appearance. Don't move, any of you. Everything is dead. Hello, you are listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And whatever you do, don't look into the cat's eyes. Close your own if you want to. Today, we will be talking about the first story of season two, Planet of Giants. Welcome back to our returning listeners. Thank you for staying with us. And a special welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. If you want to, you can go ahead and listen back on your favorite podcasting app through our thoughts on season one. We have eight episodes just waiting for you. So with that, we've had a little bit of a time jump. Doctor Who has been off the air for six weeks. And in that time, we've seen some changes in the world. A general election has been called in the UK for October the 15th, 1964, so that's looming. The Vietnam War is heating up. Taiwan entered on the side of the US. We are seeing the space race continuing with both the USA and the Soviet Union launching satellites into orbit, both manned and unmanned. Speaking of the Soviet Union, there has been a coup. Nikita Khrushchev was overthrown. Leonid Brezhnev was uh, installed in his place. And then on top of that... By the end of this story, the Labour government in in the UK is in power, Harold Wilson having won the election in October, which marks the end of the first stable government in the UK since the Second World War. In terms of media, we've seen some great premieres in terms of cult TV and movies in the time since. In America, we've seen Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Bewitched, The Addams Family, The Man from Uncle, and The Munsters all premiere. And then on the movie scene, we've seen Goldfinger, the third James Bond movie premiere in London. And then, of course, the Wednesday play premiered on the BBC at the end of October 1964. So that's where we are in the news and media landscape. Moving on to Planet of Giants, we finally got that miniaturization story that was proposed as the very first story when it was originally called The Giants and was written by Bunny Webber. However, at the time that was put on hold due to studio limitations and passed through several different writers before it landed with Lewis Marks, who started writing on a script called The Minuscules. And it was Lewis Marks who took the opportunity to add an environmental slant to the script. This story, being the opening story of season two, was actually pivotal to the negotiations for the show's future. Verity Lambert had just received uh, confirmation that production would continue for at least six more months, and she gave Billy Hartnell, Jackie Hill, and William Russell pay rises. Sadly, there was none to be seen for Carol Ann Ford. One thing to note, and we'll probably talk about this later, this story, clocking in at three parts, was originally meant to be a four-episode story. And the head of serials, Donald Wilson, on viewing the final two, decided it was kind of slow moving and asked that they were recut into one snappier episode. And the loss to each episode was around a 50-50 split. As stated, this episode, uh, this story even, was written by Lewis Marks. This was his first of four contributions to Doctor Who. He will contribute more stories to the third Doctor and the fourth Doctor. Interestingly enough, he actually has a DPhil, which is the Oxford equivalent of a PhD in Italian Renaissance history. We have two directors credited on this story. We have Mervyn Pinfield returning. He had previously directed the first four episodes of The Sensorites and, of course, served as associate producer on the show. And then Douglas Canfield had a credit on episode three. This was his first directorial contribution to Doctor Who, although he technically only directed episode four. 
So Mervyn Pinfield had directed the original episode three, Douglas Canfield episode four, and then in the version that was cut together, Douglas Canfield got the sole credit on the uh, condensed episode three. We have incidental music from Dudley Simpson. This is his first contribution to the show, and he will go on to provide music to over 60 stories, including most of the third and fourth Doctor stories. He was a highly prolific composer and worked on a number of other cult shows, including Out of the Unknown, Paul Temple, The Brothers, which starred Colin Baker, The Tomorrow People, and of course, Blake Seven. And then finally, of our notable backstage crew, we have the designers Raymond Cusick. This was his fifth of his 10 stories that he worked on, so he'd previously been on The Daleks, The Edge of Destruction, The Keys of Marinus, and The Sensorites. And so let's move into talking about the story itself. This week, our plot summary is with Riley. It was a quiet Saturday morning. The doctor was hard at work operating the TARDIS, but it didn't quite work. Then something quite unexpected happened. He shrunk the crew. Walt Disney Home Video presents Rick Brannis as the first doctor in Honey, I Shrunk the TARDIS. Get it now before it heads back to the Disney Vault. I would like to point out in my notes, I have predicted that that would happen. That Honey, <laughs> I Shrunk the TARDIS would be the summation. Good show, sir. Good show. So, season two, guys. And unsurprisingly, we start with the TARDIS going wrong. And the Doctor's kind of cranky about this. So we're already starting to pull back into kind of old, if you want to take the, the TARDIS as a character in itself, we're, we're going back to old kind of character traits here. The, the TARDIS breaks down, Susan has a dramatic moment, and then the Doctor gets upset. Write what you know. That said, I do like how the Doctor immediately realizes he's been kind of cranky and apologizes to Barbara for it. That was an excellent moment. Yeah, and I feel like it's really about time that he starts realizing that's something he does, and he's got that. He should also realize he is well, terrible at explaining things because he just tells them that they wouldn't understand instead of actually providing some kind of explanation. Also, he apologizes to Barbara, but not to Ian. Well, because screw Ian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we've all agreed that Barbara is amazing. And, you know, if anyone deserves an apology, it's Barbara. So the console broke and then they turn on the scanner. And that breaks. Jesus Christ. Because the things outside were too big for the frame. Did anyone else think that was a, a really, really poor explanation? It was partially a poor explanation and then partially a very bad foreshadowing. If it was too big, then, you know, ha ha. It, it ranked right up there with space pressure as far as explanations go. <laughs> yeah, not, not great, but... So we've got the TARDIS just generally breaking as a contrivance to venture out into the unknown. But let me point out that we also have the Doctor in a fabulous cape, and Ian is wearing a suit, and Susan is wearing some sort of overalls. I thought that was an interesting choice. Riley, since you're the big aficionado of this, does, does Ian get an opportunity to change costume, or is he in a suit all story? I think we need to know, given that the previous comments on Ian's ridiculous costumes that he gets. Unfortunately, in this episode, he doesn't. He remains in the suit, but I will give him this. He does look very good in the suit. It's a good looking suit. I agree. I, I would wear that to work. Also, don't diss Susan on the overalls. I didn't. I mean, I just thought it was an interesting choice. It, she uh, did look good in them. I think it's an age thing. 
Ian gets to wear the nice dapper suit and Susan gets to wear overalls because she's the kid. I mean, overalls is something that, that come back into fashion for teenagers every X number of years. When I was about 18, going on a, a date with someone who was a year younger than me, and she was like, I'm going to wear overalls. And I was like, wait, really? That's a thing now? Or if you live in East Tennessee, it's never out of style. Yeah, I guess in East London, it's a bit more <laughs> ironic. So anyway, our heroes venture out of the TARDIS and decide to split up because that always goes so well. That's what you always do when you're in a strange, unusual place. You separate as many people as possible and tell them to spread out. And so Susan, of course, freaks out when they're separated. Yep. The Doctor and Barbara find a giant earthworm, which I thought was actually very well done. So really good job on Ray Cusick on that. Oh, yeah, the set work um, and the creature design I thought was really good. Practical effects throughout this are really good. I, th th there are a couple of moments, and, and I'll get to them later, that I don't think work so well, but the earthworm, the egg, the ant's eggs, the fly, the matchbox, the sink, those all work so well. And I, I imagine we'll return to those as we get to them, but, but there are one or two other moments that I think, oh, that doesn't look so good. So we have the Doctor and Barbara finding a giant earthworm and Ian and Susan finding an egg. And I don't know about you guys, but this is one of my absolute favorite scenes because they find the egg, comment on it, and then Susan notices a huge pile of more eggs that somehow she managed to not notice before, even though they are right there in plain sight. There's, there's several moments in this a serial where there's very bizarre like miscommunications or <sighs> withholdings between the characters that don't really make much sense and um that's one of them see oh. what got me was i was expecting a title drop from ian right there he's almost looking into the camera and he's it's like he's just about to say we're on a planet of giants and then he doesn't no for some reason he believes that they are he ha he's really working hard on this art exhibit theory. Uh huh. Yeah. Which he holds like what on for an embarrassing long period of time. I actually thought that I was a fairly sound idea. If they'd found Whoa. the ant and the eggs later, maybe. But when that's the first thing you see, that doesn't scream art exhibit to me. Oh, you never know. They might be realistic. As I'll go on a different route, I really wanted a Jurassic Park moment. Come across the giant pile of eggs. Start talking about what the eggs are. Oh, you wanted them to hatch? Oh yeah, uh, I wanted them to hatch and like you know, you know, go kind of scientific on it. It's like he was holding on to that other theory while I'm like, why aren't you the scientist who is talking about what kind of egg this is? He's a science teacher. He's not a very good scientist. I thought the cross-cutting <laughs> conversation between the doctor and Barbara and Susan and Ian, where they were you know discovering what was going on and the reveal of the yard. I thought that was very well done. So I, I really love with that how Ian was like, yeah, I guess this is an, some kind of exhibition. And the doctor was like, nope, we've all shrunk. We're on planet <laughs> giants. And then Ian's like, yeah, um, I, this might be the World's Fair, which at the time was a topical thing. It had only just finished in New York um, and actually wrapped up while this story was uh, being made. So, and, and then Susan's like, uh, no, we're all about the size of an inch. Um, basically, yeah. everyone on screen is saying, Ian, you're wrong. The doctor and Susan were, like really figured it out. Obviously, the doctor told Barbara and she believes him. But again, the two quote unquote aliens 
<clears throat> time lords as we now know them are the ones who figure it out yeah in general i think mervyn pinfield's directing isn't fantastic but we do then get that shot that pans out from the tardis it zooms out and, and we see that in in scale with the house and i loved that shot i thought that was really fantastic yeah i, I agree with you the effects of what's big and what's small was really well done i agree with you on that some other things think some of the dialogue especially once we get to the scientists oh boy the strengths of this serial are when we're dealing with the tortoise crew going about being miniaturized and dealing with the problems that come with that the other two characters in the serial have a couple problems there in terms of that so secondary sources, so in this case, I'm thinking primarily of, of Tatwood and Lawrence Miles in About Time, and then Paul Cornell, Martin Day, and Keith Topping in the Discontinuity, Discontinuity Guide talk about the scenes with the scientist and the benefactor and the cops, etc., being reminiscent of Dixon of Doc Green, a hugely successful procedural police drama at the time in the UK. To me, it felt very early Avengers-y, season one or season two, and I kind of enjoy it. It, it, it feels like a, a guilty pleasure. I know Farrow and, and Forster and, and the, the other chap, I think his name's Smithers. Yes. Yeah. You know, it, 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 feels, <laughs> it, felt, it feels very B-movie-esque, but I kind of like it. It's, it's like one of those guilty pleasure things to watch, those badly acted 1950s, <laughs> 1960s dramas. Forrester is so menacing and so sleazy. As we're watching these early ones, I'm I'm rewatching the Avengers, and and it really feels like those surviving episodes of the first season, and I love it. See, I also had a slightly different problem. It all centers around insecticide. Yep. DN six. So my grandfather worked in insecticides, had about forty something patents in it, and so I just sit here listening to this, and I'm like, it's not all bad, guys. I feel offended to a certain degree. <laughs> <laughs> I've also heard some great stories about testing and insecticides, which is also very interesting. The one thing we need to keep in mind is that DN1 through 5 were actually okay. Just DN6 I, I don't think so. I think they didn't do anything in <laughs> DN6 because it just wiped out everything it came in contact with. <laughs> which apparently only this sweaty man noticed, and Smithers, the scientist allegedly in charge of this progress, didn't pick up on this until the third episode of this. Talking about Forrester and Farrow and Smithers, one narrative thing I found myself really enjoying on this that I thought was kind of unique to this point in Doctor Who was as the audience, we're seeing what's going on in one for better term, the macro world, which the Doctor and Ian, Barbara and Susan are not privy to. So we get far more of the plot than they, than they do. So they're figuring it out. We know exactly what's going on. I just thought that was a really cool plot device i agree i also like that they didn't do the cheesy thing that happens in most miniaturization stories and that they were never discovered yeah. and have people try to capture them and all that kind of stuff I, I just like the way these two separate plots kind of work together to kind of recap on the secondary plot in the macro world so we have Farrow, who's a government scientist who's been dispatched to investigate this insecticide, the N6, and he goes to talk to Forrester, who's the effectively the business benefactor behind it. Forrester kind of menaces him and says, hey, you don't want to look into this too much. And then Farrow says, well, no, I, I've got my duty and I'm going to send a report that says we're not going to use this because it's going to kill everything. And so Forrester kills him. 
and that kind of drives the plot for the next two episodes. Ian eventually comes across Barrow's body, and I know I already talked about effects that I didn't think were too convincing, and this is one of them. Anything with the, the rear projection doesn't really convince. The practical stuff where they built the sets, those are great. But this and the test tubes <laughs> and maybe the cat at points just doesn't quite work. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Speaking of the cat, I, I love how that is a threat. I feel like cats in particular always use miniaturization, miniaturization stories as threats. And I think it's because they're known for, you know, hunting small things while, you know, dogs as household pets don't really do that. This is something that, you know, Sandifer talks about a lot. And, and she talks about how effectively it's they're taking the banal objects of everyday life and use and making them threatening. And that's something that as we get into later Doctor Who and, and particularly, you know, New Who. That's something Stephen Moffat's a big believer in, and I think this is the first time we're really seeing that. Objects like cats, earthworms, etc. being threatening. I love that. Did anyone else find it somewhat ridiculous that when Ian walks, I mean, through the rear projection um, special effect, when Ian walks up to the dead body, he holds up his handkerchief to his mouth, to the, to the mouth of the body, to, to, like, <laughs> to, see, if check it's to see if he was breathing still? As if he wouldn't be able to feel the force feel of it on his own body at that size. I didn't notice that, but I love that. Also, uh, point out that um, the gun is so small. <laughs> it is. It is like a little baby gun. Is that I the American? Think we, in we should go with internet meme uh, vocabulary and actually say it's small. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. It's a small gun. And another point is the music. There was a very strange kind of like silly, playful music cue when they revealed the dead body. I thought it was like, is this supposed to be done like tongue in cheek or there's supposed to be some humor there that I'm missing or something? I don't know, because I feel like any of the story, any part of the story that involved like, our, you know, the, the scientist and the agent and, you know, Smithers, Forster, that seemed to be very strange played very straight and like just dramatic and simple, not very playful, while the idea of like, hey, we've got to lift a phone receiver off of a phone is you know done more playfully, or we had to climb out of a you know drain of a sink. Overall, I wasn't as impressed with the music as I have been in other serials. So I, I really enjoyed Reign of Terror's music. Um, I thought, you know, having themes for different characters and things like that was great. But for some reason, I thought they missed the mark a few times during some of the scenes. And that was one of them. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I, I think this was very, very early in Dudley Simpson's career. And I will be very curious to know what you think, Julie, particularly you being a musician, as we see him progress particularly once we start getting into the 70s. Again, composers grow and all of that. And sometimes there's just, I don't particularly like this style. So it could be that as well. But yeah, it would be interesting. I mean, honestly, in, in season one, I think, you know, at the time they wouldn't have known it, but we were spoiled with people who would eventually go on to become award winners. And that's not Dudley Simpson. He's, you know, your solid contributor, but he's nothing special. I kind of wish we could get something special every week. So the cat looks menacing. That closing shot of just the very big close-up of the cat's face, 
if I were an inch tall, I'd be terrified as well. But then as it opens up into the second episode, he's like, oh my gosh, don't move. Like, don't try to like antagonize it or anything. I'm like, the cat doesn't care if you move or not. The cat's going to be a dick. So (laughs) (laughs) the cat cat. just, yeah, the cat's going to be a cat. So the cat was just like, eh, I don't care. And then moves on, which is actual cat behavior. So I actually really enjoyed it. I was like, the cat's not going to care about this. The cat is just going to walk off and go lay in the sun. (laughs) I thought the cat was played very well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing that general sci-fi TV shows have taken away from B-movies at this point is finding ways to make the everyday objects, and I hate to call a living thing an object, but I can't think of a better term right now, kind of scary, like cats and so on. That was really popular in the late 70s. Uh, There was a lot of American films that tried to... um upon the idea of like regular animals that wouldn't be a problem if you were you know if they were the size they were supposed to be like i think of uh one was called food of the gods uh the other one was called which is hilarious uh, and but not worth the watch because it's really very boring but the special effects are a lot of fun night of the lepus where uh they get overrun by a group of like of giant bunny rabbits it's quite fun you know it's something we i think we're going to come back to in doctor who so the the one that people often refer to as the one with the maggots, otherwise known as the Green Death in the Third Doctor's era. You know, the the kind of giant menacing creature aspect. Before we move on to episode two, one thing I thought was particularly poignant was Barbara has a line about how it's, isn't it wrong to kill bees and earthworms? And we talk now about the bees disappearing and that's obviously something that comes up again in in series four of of new who and yeah i mean ecological collapse is a real concern i believe this was before the uh book silent spring came out no it was after it's after Ah, silent spring was a huge influence on this i i noticed that i read that book for a environmental law class and i felt elements of it in here Incidentally, if anyone else is wondering other potential influences, we're thinking Gulliver's Travels, uh, the 1950s B-movie The Incredible Shrinking Man, and then those kind of crime procedural dramas of the late 50s, early 60s, Dixon, Doc Green, The Avengers, etc. But yeah, Silent Spring is, is very much an influence here. And then following on from Barbara's comments, we come to the cliffhanger with the cat, which brings us into episode two, Dangerous Journey. Did anyone else think that that the cat was absolutely adorable? Of course. Yes. Clearly a she, because even in black and white, you can tell it's a calico. Oh my gosh, I just wanted to pick it up and love on it. Kitty. (laughs) Yes. And feed it miniaturized Ian's. Question. Do miniaturized Ian's leave a trail that has a similar effect to catnip? (laughs) No, but when you feed it to the cat, they refuse to believe it's happening. Ian should be very happy that he is... Uh, not dress ridiculously like he usually is in the first season, because that would have attracted the cat, and he would have been you know, swatted several times. Oh, if he was wearing the outfit that he was wearing during the Aztecs? Absolutely. So even though the cat just decides to you know, be a cat and be like, eh, screw you guys, I'm leaving, the story continues to just make everyday things scary. So we get footsteps, and they sound ominous and huge and genuinely like there's something to be worried about. 
And I just love that. So these scientists are talking and everything. And it never seemed like any of our TARDIS crew heard them. And it took me a little while to, because they never outright said at the beginning in the first episode or two, why we wouldn't be able to understand the voices. Yeah. And I, I think that's a fairly weird narrative device because Obviously, we are privy to what's going on in the macro world. So we know things the TARDIS crew don't know, but equally, there are things that they don't know that we also don't know. But it's like, so that there are plot devices like the one you just mentioned that we have no other context for. Yeah, and I think there was a line maybe in the third episode where I think the Doctor might have alluded to that fact where I think you know kind of with the telephone where they weren't able to hear their voices because they were so small it's something about the pitch yeah it's it, it's later in episode two when they're in the sink so we'll, we'll we'll get back to that but definitely yeah I think that's when they started that when it it clicked for me but it took an episode and a half to figure that out I wonder if that's real as well so we have Forrester and Smithers talking about Farrah's death Forrester lies to Smithers, who immediately sees through him, and they come up with plans to cover it up with a boat accident, which I think is fascinating, because they're going to dump Farrah's body in a boat, send it out to sea, capsize it, and then what explains the bullet wound? (laughs) (laughs) He shot himself while fighting the current. What a terrible accident. In the English Channel between England and France. (laughs) That well-known infested water. Well, I mean, he could have also had hopes that the body wasn't found. Also true. To be fair to that theory, and Riley will know exactly what I'm talking about here, being a fellow soccer fan, the English Channel is about 25 miles across at its shortest distance and maybe 50 miles at its longest. So it's not exactly a a big strait of water. Earlier this year, back in January, there was a plane carrying a soccer player. I hate saying that. It sounds so American. I want to say a football player. (laughs) From France to England, he had just signed for Cardiff City in in South Wales, and it it went down over the English Channel. And it took them, what was it, Riley, about two weeks to find the body? it took a while. Yes, it did. And that was something that was high enough profile where they knew the plane had gone down. They knew something had happened. So I think the point with a boat is you know if they don't know it's happened they might not be able to find it and i would expect maybe in the early to mid 60s that the technology to be able to actually get down to the the base of the sea and find him might be somewhat lacking so you might be on something there so it's at this point that we get again a separation of our foursome i do like the contrivances for that so in the first episode we had ian stowing away in the matchbox and and some spectacular acting around that and now we get ian and barbara in the briefcase i find it ridiculous that okay so i'm sitting here what am i going to do i'm going to hide in this thing that the person is most likely to pick up i find it very odd that they chose to hide in these things that are easily movable Well, it's a common trope with miniaturization stories because it's the only way of getting our miniature characters from one place to another quickly. Either that or they have to get a lot of exercise. Also, who leaves a matchbook out on the the lawn? That just seems really strange to me. Well, he was going to be smoking outside. So on the ground was his briefcase, his matches, and then he sits in a chair and starts reading the newspaper and he's probably going to have a smoke. Okay. I pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Ian and Barbara have made it inside, thanks to the contrivance of the briefcase. And the doctor wants to climb up the drain pipe, which bluntly I had a really bad feeling about. But actually, as I was watching that, I was kind of like, he's kind of concerned about Ian, which is not something we could say a season ago. You know, his character's definitely changed. He cares about the people he's traveling with. He doesn't want to brain them with a rock. <laughs> you know, we, we've seen some progress here. We are actually pretty close to a fully baked doctor. But he gets really excited fire. about the concept of starting a fire later on. That is so <laughs> strange. There will be no fire. <laughs> anyway, they climb the drain pipe, and in the meantime... Barbara picks up a grain of... Okay. <laughs> We're at what I believe is the strangest, most difficult to understand part of the script, part of the character. I don't... Here, let, let me sum this up for you. Let me just make it simple. Why the hell didn't she tell Ian right then? No, but she says to Ian, I touched this thing and there was something sticky on it. And he completely ignores her for the rest, and he can't remember. <laughs> and even after she collapses in the third episode, he still is like, I don't know. Like, and when the doctor's like, well, it's on your handkerchief, he still can't remember that he gave her, her hand, gave her the handkerchief because she had something sticky on her hand, and she said so. Guys, it's, it's 1964. This has to be intentional, right? Do they really just make Ian completely just not even listen to anything that she said at all? <laughs> just went on oblivious. I and then, mean, let's but think then, about it. The other problem, though, is that then while I understand while Barbara would be very upset about that, I also don't see Barbara as a person who would just out of spite. I'm going to let myself die from, you know, being poisoned. Because he didn't notice when I said that I had touched the wheat. I mean, at this point, Ian stands there and describes absolutely everything other than, than the insecticide as much more important. Your colleague and future love interest, spoilers, has touched. And you're just like, yeah, that's not important, bitch. Well, <laughs> I think one of the interesting things, though, it was, it was talked about in the third episode. But insecticide as a full-grown human being affects you differently than as a shrunken human being. So Ian's first reaction probably wasn't, oh, since we're small, maybe it will affect us this other way. So I could actually, to a small degree, understand why, you know, he might not think, oh, this is a terrible thing. Like, you can't, you absolutely can't touch this because, oh, it, it affects people, it, it affects them differently on a different scale. The doctor obviously understands it. He has a little bit more, you know, knowledge of the world, universe. Uh, but Ian is probably still thinking as if he were a normal-sized human being. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think in similar circumstances, I would be thinking, oh, well, along what would be, you know, the most normal thing for me and maybe not think about the nuances of the circumstance. So, Julie, I think you, you, you're on to something there. Maybe we missed. Ian's not just a dick. <laughs> After that exchange, Barbara encounters the fly. Great creature work on it. Oh my mm. gosh, I thought that was outstanding work. 
Very well done. If they didn't have that much of like a larger budget, how were they able to do some of the stuff that they did? It looks so good. It, it's really good. Sometimes practical special effects do a better job than the current CGI. I believe it has a lot to do with the... Um, I, I think they just haven't really grasped it. The human eye can really like see like weight and mass properly, and when something is just purely not there, it just seems a little too uh, flimsy. I also think this is something we'll get back to when we get to the third Doctor, but this being in black and white really helps these kind of effects. Very much so. I believe it. I mean, again... When we come to the John Pertwee era and start to see, I'm thinking of one story in particular, we see a, a giant fly again, and it's nowhere near as convincing as this. But is it as good as Jeff Goldblum as the fly? Nothing's ever as good as Jeff Goldblum in anything. That movie is so good. <laughs> I mean, anything he's in is so good. He single-handedly saved Independence Day Resurgence. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so... Barbara faints. Barbara faints. We get another little bit of interaction between Forrester and Smithers, where Forrester is motivated by money and Smithers by science. And it becomes very clear that Smithers is being manipulated by Forrester to everyone except for Smithers. And then we get the Doctor and Susan having scaled the pipe. Which is impressive, by the way. I mean, the dude is, well, I mean, at this point, we have no idea of his species or their capabilities. So we assume he is like a 60 to 70 year old dude. And he climbs up a drain pipe, which is really impressive because... With no rope. I was going to say, how, how, how high do we think that is? That's probably like... I mean, compared to their, uh, you know, compared to their size and scale. Yeah. yeah that's pretty, it's pretty high. Skyscraper height, they, uh, do you think? And all they all they could use were the rusty footholds within the pipe. So they get to the sink and they realize it acts as an echo chamber. Ooh, I wonder if that will be relevant later. Hmm. And then we cut back to Ian and Barbara, and she is getting increasingly upset, wanting to tell him that she touched the seed, but keeps getting interrupted. And we cut back to... Forrester and Smithers saying, let's go get this muck off of our hands, referring to Farrah's blood. Charming. And they say, oh, there's a sink in the lab. And the Doctor and Susan are in it. Never has hand washing in a sink been this suspenseful. I mean, that really does go back to that idea that everyday things are becoming a threat in this story. It's amazing how something as banal as emptying a sink can become a cliffhanger. <laughs> Well, I mean, it works okay. I don't know, like, maybe there was a shot, like, inside the drain while they're holding on to, like, the inside of the drain as the water is, like, trying to knock them off and they're just hanging on. That would be a bit more suspenseful. I'm with you. So, with that, we have the Doctor and Susan hiding inside the pipe, and we get to another cliffhanger. And I really think this actually shows the power of the miniaturization concept. We've had a cat as a cliffhanger and now we've had the emptying of a sink and these are things that at least i experience one of these two things every day and i know the rest <laughs> of you on this experience two of these two things every day I'm, I'm always threatened by my cat trying to eat me it's true i just don't wash my hands <laughs> no i kid i just don't have a cat i wish i did so that takes us into episode three 
crisis. This is where we start to think about what was episode three and what was what was episode four, where it's about 50-50 on the two parts. So I would make the fairly safe assumption that in the 25-ish minutes of this episode, 12 and a half of the original episode three crisis and 12 and a half of the original episode four, The Urge to Live, did anyone else feel that this one feels a lot snappier because of that? Absolutely. I was really curious as to what they cut. My guess is that they, I think they cut a subplot of a very tender uh, romance between the phone operator and the police officer. They were married, so I guess they didn't really need to do that. I know the rest of you watch this on BritBox, but on the DVD, there are reconstructions of the original episode three and the original episode four. And I can tell you, you are not missing a damn thing. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I can only assume there was something about Barbara wanting to put off going back to the TARDIS to stop the release of this insecticide. Because there was one yeah. cut that felt really jarring. They were responding to something that just wasn't in the episode at all. I think you're probably right, and we'll get to that when we get to it. So we start out with the Doctor and Susan being perfectly fine, hiding in the outflow overflow pipe. And then we cut to Barbara despairing, and Susan and the Doctor climb up the pipe and be like, Hey, sup bitches, we're all good. <laughs> and so the rest of the story carries on from there. We, we get the operator realizing that Forrester is not Forrester. Can we talk about how amazing that operator is? Can we talk about the high-tech spy tool he used to disguise his voice? That handkerchief. <laughs> That's one of those things that feels very Avengers-y to me. But he didn't even try to change the way he talks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we first mentioned the operator. What I find amazing is I think it helps that they're in a rural setting. If it had been an operator in a city, the operator would have been too busy to really pay that much attention and wouldn't have known these people by their voice. I think it was very important, the setting in which we were we were in, so that the operator actually knew Dr. Forrester. Not Forrester, sorry, the doctor. Oh, yeah, God. you're thinking MST3K. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry. A normal, you know, a city operator would have been like, eh, whatever, and moved on. We're going to get so many, so many complaint emails from city telephone operators now. Because there's so many of them. <laughs> I mean, the operator's the hero of this story, no doubt about it. So we cut back to our, our friends in the TARDIS, or friends from the TARDIS, even. They keep talking about only needing a cure if someone's infected. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Why does she just not say something? Why does she hold on to it? Hold on to that information. It's like she's like just angry at everyone that they didn't know. When it's like, well, you know, you said it once and only to one of them. You hadn't even told the doctor or Susan, so just tell them. And here's the thing. I'm British, if you guys what? haven't noticed. What? Yeah. yeah. And I, I grew up around that whole stiff upper lip bullshit. And <laughs> after eight years living in the USA, I can say that bullshit. And even I, in the height of my Britishness, if I had thought, oh, crap, I might die from this. I probably would have said something. I think it would have been better just to insult them by dying 
and then letting them realize that it was their own inability to be thoughtful or notice something that, you know, and just make them feel terrible. A very passive aggressive move is probably the better route there. I will keep this in mind just to show everyone next time. I think part of it was she had mentioned it earlier. Ian didn't seem to really say much of anything. So she immediately wipes her hands, probably other than like, oh, gross, I touched it. Didn't think too much of it. Was feeling a little woozy. Didn't really put two and two together. And then once she realized, she was like, well, too far gone now. Let's just see what happens. Maybe she was thinking that she didn't want to appear scared. Maybe that's it. She doesn't want to be seen like she doesn't want to seem like she's freaking out like Susan. So, I mean, maybe she's like, I don't want to tell them that I'm dying of this because then they're going to be like, you're the new Susan. I mean, I think that is very much the stiff upper lip reaction. How many accidental poisonings occur in England due to people not willing to admit that they've accidentally ingested or touched poison? I mean, I've been poisoned at least three times because of that. It's listed as natural causes, death due to stiff upper lip. All right, so finally figure out that Barbara is sick. Awesome. Doctor says, why? Great. They find out how to fix it. All she needs to do is get bigger. Fantastic. What One thing I do love is when they all suss out that Barbara is sick, she reminds me so much of all of my grandparents who would have been <laughs> in their mid to late 30s at this time. So maybe a little bit older than Barbara. But they all say, well, mustn't grumble, which is very similar to Barbara's, well, mustn't make a fuss. Oh my God, people. You don't feel good, say something. <sighs> anyway. Okay, so we figure out that she needs to get bigger. Are we getting close to the doctor becoming an arsonist? Oh, we are. We are. Oh, yeah. Both, both him and Ian were really into that plan. <laughs> A little too into that plan. I think everything that happens between Barbara initially identifying herself as sick and the doctor deciding to set fire to shit is relatively irrelevant. <laughs> To sum up, it's, it, it, it's very much like, all right, we need to get Barbara back to her bigger self. No, I don't want to get back to being bigger until we fix shit. So let's figure stuff out. In the meantime, the operator figures it all out and calls the police. And while the police are on their way, the doctor and Ian decide to... Burn it! Burn it down! It's awesome. <laughs> That'll show Thatcher. <laughs> Can we can we t discuss the playful ribbing or uh, back and forth between Ian and the doctor as the doctor is trying to instruct Ian how to exactly light an oversized match while Ian is then like, well, why don't you come over here and try to carry these things gigantic? Before when they would have done something like that, I feel like they would have like kind of gotten a little bit more like feisty with each other. But it seemed like because they were so excited about lighting a fire and blowing things up that they were kind of more of a playful mood about that. Yeah, I really love that scene, actually. I do and I don't because poor Susan in the background is just like she looks like she's struggling a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, she's got to like hold on to that matchstick. They, they did exactly what they needed to do for that for that shot to show the match lighting the gas little insert <laughs> shot right there yeah, <laughs> the, yeah exactly Just sorry we ran out you. of money making the big bugs we can't make a big match for you sorry yeah this okay you i wonder if it was actually the cameraman himself <laughs> just like hold the camera with one hand hold light lit match with the other have it slowly enter the frame so you don't see your hand so that people think that it's actually being held by two miniaturized people. <laughs>
so slightly before this pays off, we have Forrester coming clean with Smithers, and Smithers stating, oh my god, DN6 is more deadly than radiation. And then the can explodes, and the policeman shows up, and everything is right with the world. But the can explodes. Did anyone else feel like that was a little too convenient? Yeah, and also I was expecting like something rather gruesome to happen because of it. I mean, it was right in his eyes. Well, I think the other thing, too, is how quickly the scientist picked up that gun. He was ready. <laughs> yeah. It was, <laughs> he was really ready because it was, it was immediate, especially for a gun that small. Like, how was he able to find it? How was that even able to kill someone? Very close range. Yeah, must have been. So a can explodes, the policeman shows up, and our TARDIS crew run into TARDIS. Really quickly as well. Yep. And, I mean, it's rather convenient how the seed stays its original size and the crew go back to their normal size. So even though both objects are within the TARDIS, they rationalize as the TARDIS moves into more normal dimensions, I guess. It feels messy to me. Does it feel messy to anyone else? You think too much. Well, this is why I never sleep, so yes. I was I was less bothered by that than the fact that despite all that has taken place and all that they had learned about this, you know, what has happened to them, Ian still couldn't figure out what the purpose of this of the doctor bringing the large seed back to the TARDIS was. And we end with the repaired scanner and the TARDIS materials. We also end with saying everyone needs to take a bath. Yeah, that was so funny to me. When when he when he, the way the doctor kind of corrals them to do that, it felt like a high school like PE coach or football coach saying like, "All right, everybody, hit the showers. Good job out there today." <laughs> Before we vote, we have two items of discussion. Firstly, we have the metrics. So we start with with the Susan freakout count, Julie. The Susan freakout count for the Planet of Giants is four. Oh, yes. And they're all in the first episode. So I know we had originally said that we were going to just go by season, but taking our season one count and obviously adding this, that takes us up to 48. We're so close to 50. The Ian Murden ca- murder count. Ian managed to m- not murder anyone this week. He didn't so, get to murder even like a large ant. But he did nearly blind a guy. That's true. That's true. But he didn't. It was actually never proven if he was blind or not. That's true. So, the final thing before we take a vote this week. This idea of the giants, the miniatures... That's been something that has been floating around since the original documents for the commissioning of Doctor Who. I want to know from each of you, did it work? Was it worth the payoff of an entire season? Or did you just kind of think this one was a bit disappointing? Riley? I think that if this was originally meant to be the first episode, I think this would have been a Great for, I mean, if they would have included more character development and introduction and exposition, da 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 da, it would have been great. Um, as a, as a pilot episode, um, shows everything that you need to do and it gives uh, audience, you know, amazing, you know, set design, set pieces, set design, character design, creature design, you know, special effects, everything that you need to do to tell the, tell the audience, this is what we're going to be about, this is what we can show you. 
it works almost as well as a second season opener because it does once again show, I believe, the capability of the special effects as well as the design and the ability to put some money towards it. But I would say if you've been sitting on this script for a year and your underlying B-plot is something as basic and uninspiring as this, then uh, you should have come up with something better. Something that would have you know, been maybe more directly interacting with the uh, miniaturized crew. Yeah, I think that's more of a, a tech demo of an episode more than anything else. All right. Thank you, Julie. I think one of my major issues was I grew up with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, both the movie and the show that I actually enjoyed. So first it was kind of like, oh, well, this is that a little bit of liver again. Obviously, this was done first. I think, again, kind of what Riley said from a set design perspective, from a visual effects, this is a fantastic episode. But characterization was slim. If you were to have taken Barbara and Ian and immediately thrust them into this, it wouldn't necessarily have proven, oh, I have a box I can go through time and space and kind of limits a little bit of what Doctor Who is from that perspective. And then to sit on it for a year, I don't know that it held up very well other than a visual per- you know, visual effects perspective. So yeah, I could take it or leave it. That's fair. Done. Mm, Thank I think I'm going to be repeating. My- Was it worth the wait? As if there's some sort of anticipation. I went into this episode without any sort of grand expectation, like, oh, I've been waiting for this miniaturization story for so long. <laughs> it, it was just an episode. I still find it rather weird that when you've invented this show where you've got a box that can take you anywhere at any time, your first idea for a story is, what if they were really small? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand that that line of thinking, but hey, there it is. Was it worth the wait? I don't know. I enjoyed it. The things I didn't like were sort of on the characterization end of it, with Ian just not wanting to figure anything out, Barbara not wanting to explain that she'd come in contact with it. There were some inconsistencies. I didn't like the fact that Smithers was in charge of this thing. He didn't realize it was killing everything it touched. That seems super dumb. But is it a good, is it a fun story? Yeah. I guess the question I'm asking is, if you'd kept the very first episode, and then instead of three episodes of Running Around with Cavemen, you'd had these three episodes, would it have been better? Personally, to me, uh, yes. Julie. As is, or... Just the idea of it being... Minor minor adjustments on the assumption that you would not know these characters in the way that you do now. It could possibly work. I didn't mind the caveman. I actually rather enjoyed it. Again, I think we disagree on period pieces, although I don't know that you would necessarily call primitive history a period piece. However, from a perspective of if I were to come in, see that first episode, and see the visuals... I would have probably been in awe of the visuals at that period of time. Um, So I definitely would have watched more. Visually, I would have been much more enthusiastic. But the characterization, I don't think I would have enjoyed it as more because the characters didn't develop very well. Makes sense. Don? I'm going to have to say no, simply because I think the story works as something different from the usual fare, but as an introduction to a series whose main facets are 
time and space travel, and this doesn't really have either of those, I don't think this would have made a good introduction to the series. I'm with you on that. I like the concept behind it. Equally, I think it's very important to uh, show TARDIS is capable of traveling in time, forward, backwards, sideways. And this is a sideways story. In An Unearthly Child, we went backwards. In the Daleks, we went forwards. If we were going to use this one, we should use it as a replacement for the Edge of Destruction, right? So rather than using a story where we are in the TARDIS facing something, we need to use... This should have been used, if this was going to be used in Season 1, as an option for the third serial, rather than the first. With those thoughts, let's vote on this story. I thought this story was enjoyable. I thought it had its faults. However, for me, I'm going to give this story DN 6.5 out of DN 10. (laughs) (laughs) Don, over to you, sir. This is a difficult story for me to rate because inevitably our ratings wind up being compared to how we felt about other stories. I enjoyed this story. It wasn't the best story I've ever seen, but I like the fact that they edited it down to something, so it kept moving. It was fun. I liked the way the two plots worked together without overbearing on each other. I'm going to give it seven and a half giant matchsticks out of ten. Over to you, Julie. Oh, man, I think for once I disagree. I could not get interested in this story. I can't quite place my finger on it. I think part of it is I felt the acting was a little bit more wooden than it had been in the past. Ian just was not on fire. You have Barbara just not telling anybody what's going on. Susan had her freakout moments at the very, very beginning, and then the rest of the time she's just fine. The doctor starts off tired as soon as the TARDIS starts going wrong. I did not quite enjoy the kind of B-movie-esque feel of the, the scientist and Forrester. I, I don't know exactly what it was. I did not enjoy this one quite as much as I have the others. I am giving it five competent telephone operators out of ten. <laughs> And Dr. Shrek. Oh, Doctor. Okay. This is the opening episode, starting episode of season two of the of Doctor Who. And I really enjoyed the season as a whole from my previous watch. And watching it again, I enjoyed it just as much. And that's not to say that this first ep- first serial is not without its faults. It definitely has several. I think that they could have intertwined the two plots a lot better. I feel like we could have gotten situations where we're just going from one pitfall to another. You would think that we would have maybe some more moments of like character building of the TARDIS crew or some sort of development there. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for this to be fleshed out and given a lot more than what it is. On the other hand, though, what is it? It looks really, really cool. <laughs> it's fun. They made did a great job of not falling into the same mistake that they did in the previous season. They they knew to cut, and so things are moving. You are never watching an episode and realize this episode didn't even need to exist. It's short. It's to the point. You see some cool large stuff. You see some interesting little gags. So I would give it 6 out of 10 rusty footholds in a drape pipe. So with that, 
This gets an overall score of 6.25, which means it's officially better than than Marco Polo. Okay. And the Sensorites. Yay! Uh, I thought you were only going to say one. <laughs> and on a par with the Edge of Destruction. Thank you for listening to us. We appreciate you. We will return in two weeks' time with our commentary on the Dalek invasion of Earth. Thank you, and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Philippek, Riley Schreck, and myself, Anthony Williams. It was recorded on Wednesday, February the 27th, 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on your preferred podcasting app. And always remember, it's probably best to avoid touching unknown things, particularly unknown sticky things. <laughs>